Well, good morning. Great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm part of our preaching team. As Seth said, we're continuing in our study in the book of Exodus, and uh, I'm going to just introduce this super short and dive in today. Um, I'll just introduce it by saying we love watching epic battles of good versus evil, don't we? And we love it when good wins, right? When evil wins, they keep making sequels until good wins, right? And we are suckers. We keep going back and watching. Uh, But ultimately, that's what we want to see is we want to see really, really horrible people crushed by really, really good people. That's what we get to see in this story here today as God crushes Pharaoh, who's been oppressing his people for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, One of our pastors at Redemption, Arcadia, summarizes Exodus this way. He says, Exodus is a narrative epic. It features a cruel villain, Pharaoh, an unlikely hero, Moses, overwhelming disasters, the plagues, that's what we're looking at today, a spectacular deliverance crossing the Red Sea, a long journey through wilderness, a mountaintop experience, Moses getting the Ten Commandments, and miracles, setbacks, confrontations between good and evil, and a grand finale. And today is the showdown between God and the cruel villain, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was sort of asserting himself as God. We didn't uh, get into this much last week if you were with us. In Exodus chapter 5 verse 10 though, it says this, after uh, the people had uh, you know, asked, after Moses had said, hey, let my people go, in chapter 5 verse 10 it says, thus says Pharaoh. Now if you're at all familiar with the scriptures, you know that it's very common to hear the construction, thus says the Lord. And Pharaoh is setting himself up in opposition to God. Spoiler alert, it's not going to go well. And so that's what we have today. And I have had so, so, so much fun uh, studying this passage in preparing for this. I actually sent Molly a text this week that said, I'm getting goosebumps. And I was not kidding. I literally had goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps as I see God's power and wisdom in the plagues. He is amazing. So let's just get to it, all right? You're gonna need a Bible today. We're gonna go through a big chunk of scripture and we're gonna look at these nine plagues that precede the final and 10th plague of the the death of the firstborn that we'll look at in coming weeks. So here's kind of how this is gonna work. I'm just gonna kind of geek out over scripture uh, with us together. So that's that's how how we're gonna kind of do this. And essentially what we're gonna look at today is there are nine plagues and the author of this book, most scholars believe that was Moses. Uh, he writes this in a literary genius way, right? We think about the authors of scripture being kind of knuckle-dragging, you know, cavemen who just grunt, sort of these prehistoric people, and yeah, the Bible, it's all old. You haven't read the Bible. It's brilliant. And the structure of it's brilliant. So what you're going to have is you're going to have these nine plagues, each broken into three sections each. Each of the three sections is going to feature a warning where Pharaoh goes down, or I'm sorry, where Moses goes down to warn Pharaoh about what's about to happen in the morning down by the Nile River. And what you're going to see over the course of these plagues is God is going to turn the screws and turn the screws and turn the screws, and he is going to make it where the hard-hearted Pharaoh will let his people go. We just read the first warning you saw there in chapter 7, verse 15. He said, go to Pharaoh in the morning and and warn him. What did he warn him? He says, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. And in fact, that's what happens. 
It says in chapter 7, verse 20, follow along with me. It says, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile." So God's first opening strike against Pharaoh and against Egypt, who've been oppressing his people, is to turn the Nile into blood. Now, this is so significant because the Nile was worshipped by the Egyptians. Not only was it a source of life for them, but it was a source of worship for them. In fact, lots of scholars say that probably the reason the magicians are able to reproduce this act is because they're tapping into the demonic power of the Nile and the gods that they worshipped. It's interesting, if you look at this Exodus story, it begins with blood in the water of the Nile, and it ends with blood in the water of the Red Sea. And it's significant that the first plague against Egypt is turning the Nile into blood. Why? Because what had Pharaoh and his ancestors done? They had filled the Nile with the blood of infants. Remember, they had tried to exterminate the Jewish babies, said, you know what, drown them, the Jewish boys, drown them in the Nile. They fill the Nile with infant blood. God says, listen, I'm going to fill the Nile with blood. There's wisdom, there's precision, there's brilliance in the way God goes after Pharaoh. Look to chapter 8, verse 1. We go to the next Plague, the plague, oh, oh, wait, before we get that, we're going to do this at the end of each of these little sections. Look at what it says in verse 22. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Each of these plagues, at the end of it, is going to have some summary statement about Pharaoh's heart, and what you're going to see is that it's hard, and it's hard, and it's hard, and it's hard, and God is going to keep allowing it to be hard and even making it hard so that God can show Egypt and the world who he is. All right, second plague is frogs, frogs. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. Very specific. There's frogs everywhere, right? The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Now, the magicians are able to reproduce this particular uh, thing as well. They strike the Nile, and out of the Nile comes more frogs. But there's a problem. Pharaoh's magicians have the power through their demonic worship to reproduce this plague, but they don't have the ability to stop it. That's a problem when there's frogs in your kneading bowls. Uncle, like someone help here. So verse eight, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, 
By the way, that's not the first time that Pharaoh's gonna go, yeah, 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 I'll do it. But change his mind. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. He goes, listen, I'll pray for you. Sure, I'll pray for it to stop. You tell me when. And he said, tomorrow. One of my pastor friends preached a sermon once called One More Night with the Frogs. This just shows you Pharaoh's stubbornness. I'll be in charge of it, and not right now, when I want tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. That's what God's trying to do here. He's trying to wake people up. He's trying to say, here's who I am. Exodus is a book about a God who's making himself known in a world that has long forgotten him. It says in verse 13, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses after Moses prayed, the frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. So first, God attacks the Nile, turns it into blood, but the second plague is also related to the Nile. Did you notice where the frogs came from? They came from the Nile. And this plague now involves the animal kingdom. In Genesis chapter one, you're gonna see lots of references here to the creation story. In Genesis chapter one, animals were to be given to human beings to have dominion over them. And now, in this plague, the unraveling of creation is beginning, and animals, these frogs, have dominion over the people. They're everywhere. Now, here's what's fascinating as well. Just as the Egyptians worshiped the Nile, they also had a fertility goddess. Remember, this were a polytheistic people. They had a fertility goddess named Heket. Let me show you a, a picture in one of the carvings of Heket. This Egyptian fertility goddess was depicted with the head of a frog. God is offering a precision strike. And isn't it beautifully ironic that God attacks the fertility goddess in the river where his infants were killed. Again, a precision strike by the Lord. But it says in verse 15, but when Pharaoh, here's, here's the hardening of his heart, but we, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So he'd said, hey, yeah, go ahead, go, go, go ahead, go do your thing. No, never mind. All right, plague number three. Interestingly here, there's no warning at all. God just whacks them, and here's what it says in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Gnats, this is the third one. This is mostly to irritate them, it seems. And it says in verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Again, where did these gnats come from? They didn't come from the Nile, where the sorcerers had some demonic power available to them. This came from the dust of the earth. They can't reproduce this. It said, so there were gnats on man and beast. No warning, just a quick punch. And it's interesting, there's no indication in the story at all that the gnats ever go away. Maybe they just become a new way of life for the people of Egypt. Verse 19 says, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger 
of God. God's clearly at work here. God is doing something. Uh, This is a power that we can't reproduce. This is a power we don't fully understand. Uh, This is something new, the finger of God. But look at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So three plagues, all trying to get the people's attention, all showing that God is God over all the other Egyptian gods and over all of creation. Now here's the second wave. It begins with a warning again. The warning goes like this in verse 20 of chapter eight. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning. Again, that's the pattern of these warnings, early in the morning, and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, and your people, and into your houses. And the house of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth." Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the houses of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. You ever, uh, some of you are horse people, right? You have horses or you ride horses, right? And there's those interesting things that the horses wear, those like masks that they have over their eyes. Because if you've ever seen flies just kind of get in their eyes, I mean, you just kind of, it makes your eyes water. It's like, oh gosh, make it stop. Now there's flies everywhere. Now this is interesting. The last three plagues are showing that God can make blood out of water. He can make gnats out of dust of the earth. And he can take flies from the air. All the elements of creation are being undone. This is a key theme that we're going to see here. Sin unravels God's good creation. And in this judgment, God is allowing that unraveling to accelerate. That the people of Egypt would experience the curse of a hard-hearted, sinful leader. Now, this section actually had some firsts. I I don't know if if you noticed these, but there's uh, one first is this. Moses, in this particular one, this fourth one of the the flies, he doesn't, for the first time, he doesn't use a staff. Why is that significant? What's significant because the power of God doesn't come through a stick. It comes through God. Sometimes we get so attached to particular ways of doing things in particular. Well, this is the only way that God works and this is the only way God shows up. No, God's God. God shows up when God wants to show up, amen? And so no staff, God's power doesn't require that. Also at first is in verse 22, there's now a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. Goshen was the land where the people of Israel dwelled. And so it is interesting that God says, you know what, I'm gonna set apart Goshen. They're gonna be fly free, a no fly zone. <laughs> right? They're gonna be clear of this, but you guys are gonna have this. So there's a distinction between God's people and Egypt. There's also an interesting thing that God is deepening the destruction of Egypt because notice what it says at the end of verse 24. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. It's getting worse. Now, in a democracy, this is when protests start. 
This is when pickets begin. But for Pharaoh, it's all about Pharaoh. He's going to do what he wants. He is all-powerful in Egypt. And so he pleads again, hey, make this stop. Here's what it says in verse 29. Then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. Right? God is putting creation back together. He lets it unravel and then he puts it back together. But that doesn't change Pharaoh's heart. Look at what it says in verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. All right, Pharaoh, it's gonna get worse. Fifth plague is livestock. Chapter nine, verse one, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Did you notice verse three? Previously, Pharaoh's magicians had said, hey, this is the finger of God. Moses says, yeah, 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 you saw the finger, now you're going to see the hand, and it's heavy. All these animals are going to be struck. Verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All of the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Now Pharaoh's actually sending spies. Hey, we, go check out Goshen. They're saying that, that Israel's exempt from this. I don't know if I believe that. Will you go check it out? Someone goes and checks it out. Sure enough, their livestock's fine. Now, not all of these plagues are an attack on Egyptian deities, but many of them are, and this one seems to be another. The sky goddess, Hathor, of the Egyptians was portrayed as a cow. And so God's turning up the heat. God is now not just bothering people, but he's really afflicting a significant way of life for them, allowing this unraveling of creation to not just produce irritating animals, but to actually destroy animals. Now, something worth noting is that where it says that all the livestock of the Egyptians died, this is sometimes confused people because what you'll see in a minute is that more livestock are going to die. And you're going to go, well, how long did this take if all of them died and then all of them die again later? Uh, the word all here is often used not to mean all uh, without exception, but rather all without distinction. I think that's what's significant about where it says in verse three, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks, all of these different kinds of animals are dying. It doesn't mean every single one, but a significant amount of all of these kinds of animals of the Egyptians are dead. Not one for the people of Israel. God is turning up the heat and Pharaoh's still not getting it. Look at what it says in verse seven. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people Go. Number six, 
boils. Someone just said, ugh. That's right. That's the appropriate response to that. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. A boil is a sore. It's real pussy and oozy and itchy and gross. You're like, yeah, stop talking about it. You know, you need to feel this. Because it's all over the place for the people of Egypt. So they do that. And not only can the magicians not reproduce this, it says in verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. They can't even stand in the presence because their bodies are so significantly injured. Not only would they experience physical pain here, but they would have not been able to worship their gods because they would have been unclean. So again, God is attacking the gods of Egypt, the religion of Egypt, but even more significantly, for the first time in this whole story, as creation's unraveling, God is attacking the people of Egypt. Creating actual physical harm for the people of Egypt. For the first time, Pharaoh is allowed to see the lives of my people are in danger. Now, there's something about this. This is one of the things that gave me goosebumps. Did you notice how they got the boils? Moses and Aaron were to take the soot, the dust from the kiln, and throw it into the air, and it would disperse in the air, and it would spread out through Egypt, and it would land on people, and they would begin to get these boils. Now, think about this. What is the soot from the kiln? What was the kiln? The kiln was the place where the slaves... The Hebrew slaves baked the bricks that built Pharaoh's kingdom and kept them enslaved. God could have picked dust from anywhere. But in poetic justice, he says, get the soot, the dust from the kiln. Because just as Pharaoh and his ancestors destroyed my people through the act of harsh slavery, I'm going to destroy his people. Wow. This is not God just sort of losing it. This is precision strikes. Thoughtful, wise, powerful, devastating, absolutely There's also a first in this particular passage because at the end of this, it says in verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. See, before this, it has said the, that Pharaoh hardened his heart as the Lord had said or the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. You're not really sure who did it. Was it Pharaoh? Was it God? How did it work? But this one, for the first time, we'll see this again, says, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them. The Lord wants to inflict more pain on this evil, tyrannical, genocidal ruler who has been harming his people, and who are you to say he can't do that? Who am I to say he can't do that? He is God, which is the very point that Pharaoh 
is missing. So that marks the end of the second cycle. The Lord has hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Now, to the third cycle, and we get the warning here in uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning. Again, that's that pattern. That's that rhythm we see. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself, on you yourself, and on your servants and your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Pharaoh, I don't think you get it yet, buddy. You still think we're like equal. You still think you're all powerful. You still think you can get out of this. There is no one like me, Pharaoh. You need to see it. Verse 15, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. I'm actually merciful that I haven't wiped you out yet. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. This is such a key verse, verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why is God doing this? Why is God inflicting just wrath against sinful, evil, oppressive people to show his name, his power, that it would be proclaimed in all the earth. He says, verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, here's the next plague, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been seen, never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, get your livestock, And all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. This, uh, of all of these plagues, seems to have the most detail. This is the longest section. I'm not going to actually read all of this whole section because it's, it's the most detail. Here, we, as I said, Pharaoh's let in on the secret of what God is really up to. He's going to show his name throughout the earth. Now, the significance of hail was that hail was often viewed in the scriptures. You can look at Joshua 10, Psalm 18, Isaiah 28, Ezekiel 13. Hail is associated as an act of judgment. And hail is incredibly Destructive. I remember a number of years ago, my, my parents live in Denver um, in the summer. That's where I grew up. And a number of years ago, maybe five years ago, they had a really, really bad hailstorm. And as a result, everyone in their neighborhood got a new roof because it just destroyed it. I, we were there actually this summer and there was a little bit of a hailstorm. And a friend of mine that I met up with was like, oh my goodness, I got all these dents all over my car because of the hail. Now, It's one thing to experience a hailstorm that can mess up a roof, mess up the hood of your car. This is a hailstorm that's gonna land more like a bullet, that's gonna put livestock down, that's gonna put people down. I mean, this is really, really serious. But look at even the mercy of God in the midst of this. If at this point you're going, man, God is just so, I don't like how how kind of mean God seems. Look at the mercy of God even in this moment. Look at verse 19. He says, Now send, get your livestock, get into safe shelter. Listen, it's coming. I'm preparing you. Will you do it? And notice a lot of people 
Take God up on that. It says, verse 20, then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But you know what it doesn't say? Then Pharaoh commanded his servants to gather their stuff and get it in the houses. The servants of Pharaoh are doing this not because of Pharaoh, but in spite of Pharaoh. Why? Because his heart is hard. He doesn't fully realize this. Look at what he says in verse 27. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord that there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. This seems interesting. For the first time, Pharaoh is actually using the S word. I sinned. I did this wrong. Moses knows better. He says in verse 30, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Pharaoh, I've been through this. I've seen this movie. And so sure enough, the hail goes away, and it says in verse 34, but when, this is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Whoa, 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 wait. I thought before it said the Lord hardened his heart, and now he's saying he sinned and hardened his heart. So which is it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart, or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Answer? Yes, right? This is the same answer you give on Thanksgiving. Do you want pumpkin pie or do you want apple pie? Yes, right? It is both. Pharaoh is doing what Pharaoh wants to do and Pharaoh is doing exactly what God is ordaining so that he can display his power and his name in all the earth. Mystery there, for sure. But that's what's happening. Eighth plague, the next one is locusts. Locusts, we read about this in chapter 10. You can turn to chapter 10, the plague of locusts. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them. In other words, these next two, Pharaoh doesn't really have a chance. I've hardened his heart. I know what's coming. He's not gonna let you go, but I need to show him and I need to show the world who I am. I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. The Lord is trying to reveal himself to the world. And who is God? He is one God who rules heaven and earth. Who is God over the water and the land and the air? And he is a God who is holy and who will not let injustice go unpunished. And 40 plus years later, when the people of Israel get to Jericho, the people of Jericho have heard what happened to the Egyptians. That was God's plan. 
Verse three, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. Duh. Let them go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? But Pharaoh won't do it. So it says in verse 13, so Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. Why does he mention twice the east wind coming? Here's why, because in this section now, he's starting to preview what's coming. And how is it that the Red Sea will part and allow the people of Israel to walk through? It will be the wind from the east. And just like God will bring that wind that will rescue Israel and condemn Egypt, he's bringing on the east wind these locusts. Verse 14, the locusts came up over the land of Egypt. They settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. Well, what's that preview? That previews the next plague, which is going to be darkness. It totally wipes everything out. Pharaoh again says, hey, I've sinned, I've blown it. Please do something about this. So Moses prays and it says in verse 19, and the Lord turned the wind to a very strong west wind which lifted the locusts and drove them, notice where it drives them, and drove them into the Red Sea. How are the locusts put away? They're drowned in the Red Sea. How will the Egyptians be put away? They'll drown in the Red Sea. Why? So that generations will know who God is. Does this work? No. Why? Because Pharaoh's heart is hard. That's God's design. Verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Last one. Darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. I don't know what that kind of darkness feels like. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, no. (laughs) You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Darkness. This challenges the Egyptian sun god, Ra. And Ra was viewed to be the chief of all the Egyptian gods. 
And so this last plague before God takes the firstborn sons of Egypt is to put out the sun, God. (laughs) Darkness. A darkness that's felt. A darkness that's heavy. A darkness where you can't see. Darkness in the scriptures represents chaos. In the opening verses of the Bible, we see that there's darkness over the face of the deep. There's chaos. And yet, even as God allows creation to unravel and he puts out the sun for the Egyptians, there's an amazing thing at the end of verse 23. At the end of verse 23, the ESV translates it, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. But let me tell you literally what it says. But for the people of Israel... There was light. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. A precision strike. Pharaoh has a hardened heart, verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And in banishing Moses from his presence, Pharaoh is cutting himself off from the only hope he has of salvation, that he might repent, that he might turn, not in words, but at a heart level and in his actions, and he might be forgiven and spared But he cuts himself off, and this will not end well. Now listen, I know that's intense. (laughs) Like, whoa. What are our takeaways? Three big takeaways from this. First, we should look at God's power and wisdom and just say, wow. Right, sometimes, I don't, know, I don't know how you come to church. If you come to church thinking like, man, I, really, I brought my notebook. I need some to-dos this week. Give me some application points. Fine with those. Like, a lot of times those are appropriate. Here's an application point. Look at who God is and what he does and just say, wow. Wow. This is a God who's glorious. This is a God who's powerful. This is a God who's wise. This is a God who's surgical. This is a God who's just. Say, wow, praise him, worship him. That's why he's doing this, so that we would know who he is and acknowledge that he and he alone is God. Say, wow. Good job. All right, here's the second big takeaway, is that God is both revealed and hidden. We can know him truly, but not fully. Here's what I mean by this, is throughout all of this, God is revealing himself, and he's revealing himself publicly, right? This is not something that just one person kind of on their own in prayer, in a cave with some sort of angelic, you know, vision kind of discovers and brings out for everyone to see. No, 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 no. This is God revealing himself in public, in history, He really, God really does reveal himself. He's not this mystery that can't be known truly, but he is a mystery that can't be known fully. And the place I see that is all the stuff with the hardening. How's that work? God God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, his heart was hardened. How, why, who, like, how'd that happen? I don't know. 
I can't fully explain that. I think the thrust of this passage is to say God is God, God is in control, God is in charge, God is good, God is just, and God will do what's best. Trust him. But that doesn't mean we get a full answer. We can know God truly, but we can't know God fully. Some of you, you've been resisting God. You go, well, I don't know if you can really, if anyone can really know God. Yeah, you can. He's revealed himself in history. That's been recorded in the scriptures. Some of you, you you go, I don't know if I really trust God because I got all these questions. So do I. There's a bunch of questions you and I are going to have forever. And God didn't answer them. And I think it's a little bit proud of us to assume that if he had explained it, we'd get it. Because there's plenty in here he has explained that we don't believe or like or get. Here's the third big takeaway is that salvation is God's recreation. Get this, sin is the unraveling of creation. Sin is breaking with the fabric of God's good creation. Sin is doing the opposite of what God created us to do, who God created us to be, how God created us to think, and to live, to act. Sin unravels that. What God does here in all of these judgments is he just allows that unraveling to accelerate. But then salvation is when he lets it go back to normal. The reestablishing of God's recreation. Isn't it interesting then, years later, when Jesus shows up, what does he do? So much of what amazed people about Jesus was his power over the creation, over the elements. What did he do? He walked on water. He commanded storms. He multiplied fish and bread. He curses a fig tree and it withers. What is that supposed to tell us? That is supposed to tell us that Jesus can do the things that only God can do, which means that Jesus is God. That's the whole point of all of those miracles is not just go, wow, Jesus is powerful. No, 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 Jesus is doing God stuff. And at death, at the death of Jesus, creation begins to unravel again. Remember, the sky becomes black. The earth quakes. The rocks split. Why? Because soft-hearted Jesus absorbs the fullness of God's holy wrath in our place so that us hard-hearted sinners could be forgiven and freed and could be objects not of God's wrath but of God's mercy. The fullest revelation of God is found in Jesus, the one who commands the elements and the one who absorbs the judgment so that we don't have to. This whole thing should make us say, wow, as it points us to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to bathe in it, to be shaped by it. God, I don't know that a sermon like this answers all the questions that might get raised here, but but I do hope, God, that it allows us to see you as you are, to worship and praise you and to say, wow. We love you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name, amen.